Hi, this is Saki Rahman from the OrthoClips podcast series. And today I'm with Serena Namdari. He is Associate Professor of Orthopedic Surgery, Fellowship Director and Co-Director of Shoulder and Elbow Research at the Rothman Institute in Philadelphia and Thomas Jefferson University Hospitals. Um, welcome back, Serena. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be back. Great. Um, so today we're going to be talking about uh, geriatric proximal humerus fractures, what to do. And um, as a matter of fact, this is a, a similar to a topic we're going to be talking about next Saturday, June 12th at the uh, online uh, Philadelphia Orthopedic Trauma Symposium webinar. So if anyone's interested in hearing more about this, uh, you can go to orthoclips.com and follow the links for this year's meeting. Um, but, um, let's get into it, uh, Dr. Namdari. So I guess one of the first questions I had was how do you define geriatric, um, when you think about proximal humerus fractures and, you know, why does that matter? How does it affect your decision-making? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really good question. You know, before I answer it, I think, you know, the, the, another plug for the, for the upcoming meeting, you know, I think discussing topics like this in a group setting with, you know, high quality experts that will be on the panel is so important because, you know, these, these problems you can treat in so many different ways. And so, you know, we look at the x-ray and, you know, it may be this, the same x-ray, but attached to five different people and you may treat it five different ways. So I think it's so important to kind of talk about our indications, but I think your, your question is a good one because it, it starts off with the idea of what is geriatric. And I don't think there's a definition of geriatric. So, you know, I think geriatric is what you perceive it to be in a lot of ways. And so we know that chronologic age is not necessarily the same as physiologic age. So, you know, there are plenty of patients who are 70 plus who are healthier than other patients who are you know, in their 40s and 50s. Um, similarly, there are patients in their 70s who may have better bone quality than somebody in their, you know, 40s or 50s with, you know, other medical problems like inflammatory arthropathy. So, you know, but I think generally speaking, if we're going to give it a number, geriatric is commonly thought of to be somewhere greater than age 65. Um, I think that is certainly shifting and it's becoming older and older. Um, but I think that that's sort of where we consider it to be. And that's usually because patients who are at that level or older may have some attritional bone loss. Um, they may have some other medical comorbidities that may complicate um, their decision-making in terms of both um, surgical and non-surgical treatment. And then sometimes patients in that older age category have other assistive needs. You know, they may or may not live independently or, you know, they may need their arm function in order to live independently. So I think all of that plays into the decision-making. Right. I mean, I guess if I want to think of not exactly corollary, but let's just pick another fracture. I mean, intertrochanteric fracture. Person comes in with an intertrochanteric fracture you know, sure, there are a lot of um, maybe demands that may vary between one patient and the other. Um, and, you know, the, their occupation, their needs, bone quality, et cetera. But I would say my treatment is not that much different if it's a 35-year-old versus if it's an 85-year-old. Um, but would you say in the proximal humerus that, you know, this really plays a role in, in, your, in your thought process? I mean, I think it, I think it does, but I mean, how much 
how much when you see one of these patients that you're weighing their age in your decision-making? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it definitely is different. Like you said, I mean, you know, like you pointed out hip fractures, you know, we fix them. Um, proximal humerus fractures, you can make an argument to treat them all potentially or almost all of them non-surgically. And so you really have to tease out which patients you think are going to benefit from surgical treatment and which ones are okay to treat non-surgically. And, you know, age definitely plays a part um, in the equation um, because it's a surrogate for other issues. And um, so, I mean, I think that my partner, Jim Krieg, calls a lot of um, his older patients with these injuries, functional quadrupeds, because, you know, even though we don't walk on our arms, they, a lot of, a lot of these patients, they use their arms to get up from a seated position to transfer, you know, they, they, they may have low back pain, they may have weakness or deconditioning of their legs. And so they do require or rely on their upper extremities in order to get around. And so um, for that patient, um, you can make a strong argument to fix some of these um, because they may need it in order to get around in their day-to-day. Okay. Good points. Um, let's talk about criteria. Uh, what would you say are your criteria to treat geriatric proximal humerus fractures operatively? And, um, how much does your criteria, you know, derive from experience versus, uh, evidence? Uh, in the literature? Yeah, I think the literature is, is somewhat confusing. I think that, you know, if you look at the, the you know, most popular trial, the Proford trial, which um, was in JAMA a few years ago, and then uh, subsequently follow-up studies have been, have been published, but, you know, they showed essentially no difference when you treat these fractures surgically or non-surgically. But I think, you know, many of us who treat these injuries understand that there were some limitations in that trial um, that may not make it applicable to the patients that we see on a day-to-day basis. You know, they um, they excluded ones that they considered obviously in need of surgery. So, you know, I think that there are some injuries that we look at and we understand um, need to be addressed. And so whether that's your fracture dislocation, whether it's a shaft that's very medialized um, and, you know, near the glenoid or even medial to the glenoid, um, whether it's a varus displaced, um, four part fracture where there's no contact between the head and the shaft segment. I mean, I think there are some fractures that you just, that you look at and you understand that the literature excluded those fractures when they did randomized trials. Um, so, I mean, there are certainly ones that I look at and I think to myself, you know, this patient, if I fix this fracture or if I replace this joint, they're going to do better from a functional standpoint. Um, and I, I can't say it's purely from the literature. It's more uh, gestalt and experience at this point. Um, but I think that on the flip side, there's certainly really horrific looking x-rays that um, I treat non-surgically because the person they're attached to, I do not think will do well surgically, either from a medical standpoint, a social standpoint, or simply the, I don't think the bone quality is good enough to support um, fixation or sometimes even replacement. And so, you know, I have plenty of patients who have bad looking x-rays who have healed or maybe have gone on to, to not heal um, that I still looking back on would still treat them non-surgically. Yeah. I mean, speaking about some of those patients, I was 
wondering that, um, you know, ugly x-rays happen, you know, we get these malunions sometimes in lower demand patients where we, uh, you know, we accept that. Does that, is that tolerated better uh, functionally than, and we'll use the proximal femur for an example again, um, you know, then in the proximal femur, meaning like if we were to treat a proximal femur fracture non-surgically and they end up with varus malunion and shortening, et cetera. It seems to me like those are tolerated much more poorly than in the proximal humerus where you get a really ugly x-ray. Is that true? Um, or are all my malunions coming to your office uh, and I just don't, don't realize what's, you know, what's really going on. They're definitely not coming to my office. Um, I, I think, you know, your point's a great, a great one. I think that, you know, um, it is definitely better tolerated. I think there are a few reasons for that. I think one is that, you know, when the bone heals, uh, for the most part, pain is either eliminated or at least vastly improved. And so for most patients who are in that geriatric or older population, if they don't hurt, um, they're fairly content with what they have. Um, and so then when it comes to function, we have the benefit in the shoulder of scapular thoracic motion. So I think that even though the shoulder can get stiff, the glenohumeral joint can get stiff or a malunion can lead to, um, bony contact between, um, the tuberosity and the, the acromion, um, and limit glenohumeral motion, we can uh, compensate with scapular thoracic motion. And so most patients, even with a bad non-union can still get their arm to about chest height, can still get to their head um, by bending their elbow um, and still have um, some level of rotation. And for most daily tasks, especially if they're an older patient, that's sufficient. Um, if the patient has higher expectations in terms of their motion, then, um, then that is something where they may not be happy with the inability to get behind their back or their abduction may be limited if they have a, a varus malunion. Uh, but for most older patients, I think they're pretty well tolerated. Yeah. I guess that, you know, that's kind of what I feel like I've seen. So when you've decided on operative management, let's say yeah, you have a patient geriatric proximal humerus fracture and you've you know decided meets criteria to treat operatively, how do you choose uh techniques like OR, let's just maybe even break it down, ORAF versus replacement, because obviously, you know, it's different discussion, I think, with the patient and then also different skill set to some extent, you know, depending on who, you, who your surgeon is and, um, you know, different stuff you got to request. So, um, so yeah, what, how do you decide, how do you choose and what goes yeah, into I think, decision making? You know, I think that um, if you think about it by the New York criteria. So uh, a, a two-part fracture, displaced two-part fracture um, that I'm going to operate on in that age population is typically um, with calcar loss or um, shaft displacement, typically medial. And uh, that patient, I'm typically doing an ORIF with uh, plain screws. You know, their likelihood of AVN is relatively low. It's a, it's a two-part injury. Sometimes that's the case for me where I use a, a fibula um, to, to replace or reconstruct the medial calcar if it's deficient. Um, and that's a locking plate and screws. And that's not one that I'm typically having a conversation with the patient about possible arthroplasty, um, almost regardless of the age. 
Um, when, when we look into the, the three and the, and the four parts, then it becomes um, a conversation where um, for almost all of them, I let them know that there is a, a possibility of an arthroplasty. And so if it's a three-part fracture with um, large tuberosity fragment, um, the greater looks like it's a big piece and the head is um, also fairly well-preserved, potentially impacted. Um, and I think that I can get an anatomic reduction and that's one that I will typically try to fix. Um, sometimes I'll use some cancellous uh, bone graft. Um, I try to avoid fibulas in three and four parts in case they go on to AVN, uh, but I'll have a reverse available. And then the four parts in the um, kind of elderly group, if we're talking about patients over 70, 75, I'm way more likely to go to a reverse um, uh, arthroplasty at this point. And I think the data um, st is starting to support that. There was a, a study in JBJS this past year um, that looked at that age population and, and the reverses functionally did better. Um, they had lower reoperation rates. So I think that if the, at that age, usually with a four part, the bone quality is relatively poor. And I've certainly had patients who have healed in ORIF um, and, done, and done fine. But I think the a reverse arthroplasty in that population gives us a, a little bit more reliable result. Um, yeah, those are, um, I think, you know, some good criteria to decide what to do. I think if people, hopefully everybody's familiar with the neuroclassification, although, you know, I know there's sometimes discrepancy in what, what, what someone might call a three-part or four-part. Can I ask you, um, I, you know, if, if, if that is important, and I think it is to most surgeons to be able to, to pin down, um, where how to classify it by near classification are you using plain films are you you know when are you getting maybe like a ct scan to be able to or do you feel that allows you to more confidently understand the fracture pattern and and making that distinction uh of how to classify it and then what to do with it yeah i think um for any fracture that i'm anything more than a, a simple two-part um, where I'm thinking about treating it surgically, I'll get a CAT scan. So if it's a, a three, what looks like a three-part on an X-ray or a four-part on an X-ray, um, and I'm thinking about surgery, then I'm going to get a CAT scan. Um, the other scenario is that I'm really not, if I'm not really sure how displaced the tuberosity fragment is on the plain film, uh, you know, if the plain films are just not good, great quality, patient hurts too much to get adequate films, I'm concerned that the tuberosity may be uh, pulled off around the back or more displaced than it appears on the x-ray, then I'll get a CAT scan just to confirm that treating that patient non-operatively is the, is the right move. Um, so, you know, with proximal humerus fractures um, that I'm treating surgically, I'd say I get a, I get a CAT scan probably 80% of the time. And for the non-operative ones, it's less common, maybe 10% or 15% of the ones that I'm just trying to confirm for myself that non-operative treatment is the right move. It's usually the younger patients that I'm on the fence about. Okay. Good to know. Um, last question. Do you have a couple of quick tips um, that you've learned that you'd like to share to improve surgical outcomes? Um, yeah. Either with ORIF or reverse or both. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, um, when you think about ORIF, I think that the number one most important variable um, in terms of getting a good result is being able to achieve an anatomic reduction. I think that's been shown over and over again in the literature. And so that's easy to say, but hard to do. 
I mean, I think we all know that these cases are not easy. These are these are hard, technically complex operations. And so I think when you look at a fracture, you have to be honest with yourself about whether you can get that anatomically reduced. And if you, you can't, then um, either you and you decide that either preoperatively or intraoperatively, then you should do something else. Um, and whether that means send it to somebody else, whether it means um, do an arthroplasty, um, you know, it, you just have to do something else. If you can't get an anatomic reduction, that's sort of where you should stop. And so getting it, um, my, my process for doing that is first reducing the head to the shaft, uh, making sure that's anatomic, pinning that in place, and then reducing the tuberosity um, uh, to the intact segment. And that, that's work, that works well. Uh, for me, but then it becomes a matter of putting your hardware in the right spot, which I think is a lot easier. You know, I think we understand that getting the calcar screws in a, in a, in a, in plate fixation is critical. And so we've shown that getting that within 12 millimeters of the calcar is important. And so I think if you do those two things, get an anatomic reduction, um, get your calcar screw and your plate in the proper position, then your chances of having an excellent result are, are very high. I think we all put suture in the rotator cuff now to augment our fixation. And even though that hasn't been completely supported mechanically, I think most of us feel like that adds something. And so I think if you do those things, not only do you feel more confident that you're going to heal, but that you can start early range of motion, which is also important. You know, I, I, I'm, I want all of these patients moving by two weeks at the latest, uh, because I think stiffness is probably the number one complication after any proximal humerus. And so if we can get them moving early, I think our functional results are the best. That's, that's the ORIF. And then I think the reverse is again about tuberosity uh, healing is important. And so again, reducing the tuberosity anatomically is, is difficult in a reverse too, because um, there aren't a lot of landmarks. So you have to find a read on the lateral side in order to get that tuberosity back exactly where it was. And then judging your height of your stem can be a challenge for, for people. And, um, you know, you, you can't as reliably use uh, some of the markers that are in the literature, the PEC in a, in a, in a reverse. And so, you know, I simply assess how much of the calcar has gone with the head segment and has been removed. And so I'll measure that. And if it's none, if the head has no calcar attached to it, then I'll position my stem right where um, the calcar is. And if the head has calcar attached to it, I'll measure how much calcar is attached to the head. And then I'll cement my stem uh, slightly proud based on that measurement. And that, that seems to work out uh, pretty well. Okay. Great tips for, for both. I, I still use sutures. Um, does make sense to me. Actually, I, I did see some data presented at a conference just about a month ago, um, biomechanical data that uh, I guess is submitted for, I think it's actually accepted for publication. So it might come out that does in fact, um, uh, support and maybe refute some of the recent data we've seen that maybe cuff sutures don't help. So I don't know, maybe that, uh, thinking will, uh, come, come back and, uh, support that use. Yeah, I, think, I think that's, I think that's um, important to come out because, and I don't know how they did that study you're talking about, but, um, but some of the issues with prior biomechanical studies are that they use, they're all two-part fractures with, um, with a gap model. Um, and so the tuberosities are not typically osteotomized in those models. And so we understand, I think that the cuff fixation is really to support the tuberosities. And so I'm sure in that study, they did more of a three-part, maybe a four-part model. 
I can't recall. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know offline in case uh, that's something you want to pursue um, with the author. Um, listen, uh, Dr. Namdari, great stuff. Um, talking about uh, geriatric proximal humerus fractures. Um, there was actually, I'll, last thing I'll say, there was a uh, recent current concepts uh, review paper in the JBJS uh, about one month ago. On this topic, if anyone uh, wants to follow up uh, and read about it, or if you want to hear more about this um, in our live conference, again, next Saturday, June 12th, uh, go to orthoclips.com for the link. And Dr. Namdari will be there with us with our uh, panel of experts. Um, Serena, it's been great. Thank you very much. Thank you. I look forward to the conference. See you then. Yep. See you then.